Thank you both for that beautiful song, so well played. So if you have a Bible with you, open up to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, we're continuing our verse-by-verse study through this incredible gospel, the gospel of John. And if you're taking notes this morning, you'll see an outline there for you in the bulletin. The title of the sermon today is, To Die is Gain. To Die is Gain. John chapter 12, we'll look at verses 20 through 26. The apostle John writes this, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some, some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was with him from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also." If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Dear God, we bow our heads before you this morning, asking for your insight and for your word to become clear to us on this day as we look at the words of the Lord Jesus Christ teaching us that to die is gain. Be glorified as we look at this text and as we're challenged and encouraged by your spirit that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Well, on Tuesday, January the 3rd, 1956, Jim Elliott and four other missionaries landed on a small strip of land in the jungles of Ecuador in South America. It was a dangerous landing, but even a more dangerous mission. For years, they had been dreaming and planning for this very moment, Their hearts were set on reaching the Aka Indians with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Aka's were a notoriously dangerous tribe. No one had ever reached them successfully before. Some had exchanged gifts, but the Aka's had always attacked any intruders who tried to come into their area or into their lives. For three months prior to this attempt, The missionaries had been regularly flying over that area, dropping gifts and shouting greetings. When they landed, they built a hut and waited for the Akas to come and find them. They knew the risk, they knew the danger, and they went any way. Their wives had been discussing the possibility of becoming widows. Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of Jim Elliot, says that they went simply because they knew the Aka Indians were created by God and they were made in his image. They went because he was their creator and their redeemer. The only way any Aka would ever hear or know about Jesus was if someone shared with them the good news of the gospel. These five missionaries believed they had no choice but to willingly obey the God of the harvest. And that meant obeying his command to take the good news to every nation and every people. On Friday, January the 6th, three Aukas, one man and two women, approached them. They exchanged greetings. The missionaries showed them rubber bands and yo-yos and balloons. The man was taken up into a plane. Maybe this would be the time that the tribe would finally be reached. But on Sunday, January the 8th, they were due to radio in at 4.30 p.m. But there was silence. When no message came, a plane was sent and then a rescue party. Four of their bodies were recovered all lanced to death. The fifth one was never found. It seems as if they were ambushed. All five were martyred for the sake of Christ. All were married 
four were fathers. One wife was pregnant. Her three-year-old was later heard to tell the new crying baby, never you mind, when we get to heaven, I'll show you which one is daddy. Jim Elliott's diary was found by the rescue party. These were the last words that he wrote as they waited for the Aka Indians to come to them. Last words of Jim Elliott, quote, O oh Jesus, master and center and end of all, how long before that glory is yours which has so long awaited you? Now there is no thought of you among men. Then there shall be thought for nothing else. Now other men are praised. Then none shall care for any other's merits. Hasten, hasten, glory of heaven. Take your crown, subdue your kingdom, enthrall your creatures. Close quote. It was Jim Elliot who also once said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This statement has inspired thousands of Christians to this very day. You see, Jim Elliot believed that only fools hold on to the things of this world and only fools have a preeminent focus on earthly things. Only fools treasure material possessions. But those who are not fools namely Christians who are willing to forsake it all to live radically for Jesus, those who are not fools, born-again believers who want more than anything else to live on mission for Jesus Christ, those who are not fools, blood-bought children of God who seek His glory and not their own, gain something that they can never lose. What do they gain, you ask? Well, they gain heaven undistracted from all the cares of this world. They gain eternal friendship with God. They gain the joy of worshiping Jesus forever and ever. And they gain something else. They, they gain the meaning of life. They, they gain the purpose of life. They gain the answer to the first question of the Westminster Confession, what is the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever? That's what you gain. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If you're a Christian this morning, that truth rings deep in your heart because this truth didn't start with Jim Elliot. It started with Jesus Christ. Jesus said, as we see here in John 12, 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Today, we're going to see how true this is. Today, we're going to see how the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Today, we're going to see the cost of spiritual life and growth. And so this morning, I want to give you four headings that point to the truth that to live as Christ and to die is gain. The first heading reads this, God-fearing Gentiles who want to see Jesus. In fact, the first blank, if you are taking notes this morning, says the people and the events of the Passion Week. Look at verse 20 and let's examine the people of the Passion Week. It says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And so last week we examined the triumphal entry. We saw how Jesus Christ came into Jerusalem riding on the back of a donkey. This showed the humility of Jesus coming in on the colt of a donkey instead of on a white stallion. But Jesus didn't come at his first advent to be a military or a political leader. He came to be the savior of the world. He came to die. He came to offer up his life as a ransom for many. And the way that Jesus came into Jerusalem on that day is an exact fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah 9, 9, which stated that Jesus would come, quote, humble and mounted on the colt of a donkey. Not only was Zechariah 9, 9 fulfilled, which described the manner of Jesus's arrival, but also Daniel 9, 24 through 26 was also fulfilled, which gave the exact timing of Jesus's triumphal entry. Jesus, the anointed one, was to be cut off after 69 of the 70 weeks prophecy. 
Most of the people who accompany Jesus come from Bethany. They spread their garments on the road, and they cut out palm branches from the trees, and with these they prepared the way for the Lord. And meanwhile, there was a multitude of pilgrims who had previously arrived in Jerusalem for the feast of Passover, and they had heard about how Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, and they came pouring out of the eastern gate of the city, coming out to meet Jesus. And as the two crowds meet, those coming with Jesus from Bethany and those coming out to meet Jesus from Jerusalem, the enthusiasm mounts. This entire multitude is now a mix of his 12 disciples, the close friends and followers of Bethany, the host of pilgrims from Galilee, the local Judeans, and many of the hostile Pharisees who were watching. And so as Jesus came into Jerusalem, the praise of the crowd erupts. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Blessed is the kingdom that is coming, the, the kingdom of our father David. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. According to the synoptic accounts, that would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are two significant things that happen between the triumphal entry and our text that we're looking at this morning. And those two events were the cursing of the fig tree and the second cleansing of the temple. Turn with me to Mark 11. Let's take a brief look at these two events. Mark chapter 11, 12 through 14, on the following day. So this would be on the day after the triumphal entry, the day after Palm Sunday. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard it. Now, what's the significance of Jesus cursing the fig tree? I think it's this, the evidence of true religion is always measured by the fruit it produces. Jesus says you will know them by their fruits. And our Lord explained that there is an inseparable connection between the tree and the fruit it produces. A good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. And that's how you know what kind of tree it is by looking at its fruit. And so as Jesus comes into Jerusalem for that last week of his life, immediately before the crucifixion, he examines the religious condition of Israel. And what does he find? Jesus finds the state of religion in Israel is entirely diseased and therefore it is barren. And he likens it to a fig tree with no fruit. Israel is without fruit. They are without the fruit of repentance. They're without the fruit of humility. Israel is without the fruit of denying themselves and following God at his word as given through Jesus Christ. Israel is spiritually bankrupt and spiritually barren and without any spiritual life. Oh, she gives the outward appearance of religiosity around the feast of the Passover. There's lots of activity going on, but it was all a facade. In reality, Israel was unfruitful and unproductive. She was sterile and lifeless. And as an illustration, Jesus curses Israel by cursing this fig tree. The cursing of the fig tree was a powerful, symbolic act of divine judgment. For to be judged by Jesus is to be judged by God. And the judgment is upon religion that is without any fruit. This should serve as a warning to each one of us here this morning. This cursing of the fig tree demonstrates how God sees any religion that does not bear genuine spiritual fruit. It is confronted, it is condemned, and it is cursed by the Lord. All religion that does not produce spiritual fruit is cursed by Jesus. Certainly that would include all the vain religion that exists in the world today that is void of Christ. It also includes the religious things that we do today, like going to church, reading our Bibles, participating in small group or other functions here at the church, if it doesn't produce the fruit of change and repentance in your life through Christ, then all of your external actions are in vain 
and you heap greater judgment upon yourself. If you know that you are playing a religious game and you are not right with God, then your life produces no fruit whatsoever and you are no different than this fig tree. You are no different than unbelieving Israel. You will be cursed by our Lord and you will dry up from the roots. The second significant event that happened between the triumphal entry and the text that we'll look at this morning is the second cleansing of the temple. The first cleansing of the temple happened at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. This is the second cleansing of the temple happening at the end of his earthly ministry. And right there in Mark 11 verse 15 records what happened. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. There is nothing that draws the wrath of God more severely than the corruption of the worship that belongs to his holy name. The hottest place in hell is reserved for the false teachers who distort the gospel and deceive others to the demise of their own souls. God is serious about upholding his own glory, and God is serious about the proper worship of his name. And whenever God's name is marginalized or minimalized in worship, there is his righteous indignation which is sure to follow, whether it be in this world or the next, God must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. We discover in the cleansing of the temple that for the nation of Israel, worship had gone wrong. God saw the people lowering their view of him and trivializing holy things. They were no longer removing the sandals from their feet and considering themselves to be standing on holy ground when they came to worship the Lord. Instead, they were all focused on the economy of buying sacrifices and selling things in the temple and having the right shekel and how can I make a buck? And Jesus called them out on it and he witnessed this degradation of the glory of God, he saw the crassness and the commercialization and the hypocrisy and the insincerity and the pride and the politics and the dishonesty and the duplicity. And our Lord responded with lion-like righteous indignation. Now, not all people in Jerusalem were like these snarly Pharisees or apathetic Jews. There were some there who were actually wanting to worship God and to see Jesus, but it wasn't the Jews. It was the Gentiles. It was the Greeks who are recorded on this week come sweeping in with this new interest in our Lord. In fact, your next blank says the proselytes who wanted to see and worship Jesus. You see in verse 20, it says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish, we wish to see Jesus. Now, these Greeks were Gentiles who had converted to Judaism. That's what it means to be a proselyte. You're a convert. And so they had come, and, and they wanted to worship, even though it was a Jewish feast. They wanted a part of it. They wanted to celebrate the Passover. They wanted to worship Yahweh. Evidently, God had revealed himself to them, and they came to worship and throughout the Old Testament, there are many examples of proselytes or Gentiles who converted to Judaism. There was Jethro, Moses' Midianite father-in-law, who became a follower of God. There's Caleb, one of the two courageous spies and a great hero who was actually a Kenizzite, which is thought of as a tribe of the Canaanites. There was Rahab, the harlot of Jericho, converted and became a woman of faith. There was Ruth from Moab. And she married Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. There was Uriah and Bathsheba, both Hittites. There was the widow of Zarephath and Nathan, or Naaman, the Syrian commander. There was the people of Nineveh who believed in God and at the preaching of Jonah repented. So this should all come as no surprise for even the Abrahamic covenant 
tells us that there's a promise that a Messiah would come and he would bring blessing to the salvation of the people of every nation. The Abrahamic covenant was not just for land, seed, and blessing for Israel only, while they may receive some land. The seed would be a universal blessing for the entire world. Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you, God said to Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So how are all the families of the earth blessed? Well, through Jesus Christ, who was a Jew, and who offered salvation to all people, you and I as Gentiles, most of us in this room, can be part of Abraham's spiritual offspring by which the Bible says in him all nations of the earth will be blessed. Isaiah picks up on this same theme in Isaiah 49, 6, I will make you as a light for the nations for my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. And so what we're seeing in John 12 is the fulfillment of these prophecies. This, this is true before Christ. People were coming to worship God, and it's true after Christ. But even more so, after Christ, Gentiles are pouring in. And so these Greeks and these Gentiles wanted to worship God, and they wanted to see Jesus. It reminds me of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. We're told that at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So here's this pagan Roman soldier who all of a sudden starts having a interest in the things of God. At some point, he becomes a devout man who feared God with all of his household and gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. And so Cornelius was given a vision and he sent for Peter and Peter comes and preached the gospel to Cornelius and he repents and becomes a believer and a follower of Christ. And so these Greeks here in John 12 who come to the Passover feast, they came to worship God and they requested to see Jesus. Now, while they came to Philip, we don't know for sure. Some say that Jesus was in the inner area of the temple where only Jews can go and they were out in the outer area of the temple where maybe Philip was walking around. Some say, well, Philip had a Greek name and so therefore maybe they felt comfortable approaching him. Still others say that Philip was from Bethsaida and that was nearer to the Gentile region known as the Decapolis with a heavy Hellenistic influence. It's also possible that Philip spoke Greek since he was from Galilee and for whatever reason though they approached Philip and they simply wished to see Jesus. And this leads us to our next blank, the procedure of handling these kinds of requests. Verse 22, Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Philip may not have known for sure how to answer these requests to see Jesus. Would it make a big scene if he walks in with an entourage of Greek people to see Jesus? Maybe the Pharisees wouldn't like it. Maybe part of the reason was because that Jesus had said to the 12 earlier when he sent them out in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Furthermore, Jesus had on one occasion said in Matthew 15, 24, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so Philip, maybe not knowing if Jesus even wanted to see these Greeks or Gentiles, you remember they even turned away the children who wanted to see Jesus. So Philip goes to Andrew and Andrew quickly went and told Jesus. And every time we see Andrew in the scripture, he's always bringing somebody to Jesus. Remember, it was Andrew who, after hearing Jesus preach for the first time, found his, his brother Peter and said, we found the Messiah. It was also Andrew who found a boy who had five loaves and two fish, and he brought him to Jesus when Jesus fed the 5,000. And so here we're seeing at a pivotal time of Jesus's life and ministry, we began to see a transition from ethnic Israel to the world. The Jews that Jesus came to save, rejected him. He came to his own, and his own received him not. Now we see that even though the Jews, for the most part, have rejected him, that the time of the Gentiles is now upon us. This is the church age. And the church age does not have a focus on Jew or Gentile, but on all people. The church treasures the gospel. It doesn't get overly focused in Old Testament customs and civil and ceremonial laws. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new in Jesus. 
And notice that that's all these Greeks want to do. They want to worship God. They want to see Jesus. They are not requesting to see a rabbi. They don't want to see the high priest. They are not requesting to learn more from the Talmud or the Mishnah. They are not looking for the Ark of the Covenant. They are not trying to get into the Holy of Holies in the temple. The Holy of Holies, who is Jesus Christ, was out on the Temple Mount, and they wanted to see him. They wanted to talk to him. And my friends, there's something that we can learn from this today. We need to be a church that wants to see Jesus. May we not be too distracted with the building fund or the building plans or distracted with the size of our attendance or the giving on any given Sunday. May we not become too focused with the preferences of the styles of worship. May we not become too distracted by disputes over social justice. May we not be overly interested in addressing all the issues of our culture. May we not stop worrying about whether or not the government shut down or not. I heard it reopened. End of the week, finally, right? But sometimes we get so caught up in all of that that we forget, oh, wait a second, we're just here to see Jesus. Like, show me Christ. Let us be a church that can be presented to our Lord with no spot or no wrinkle. Let us be a church that has not forgotten our first love. May we be the pillar and the buttress of the truth, and that truth is we need Jesus. He's the head of the church. He's the one that we come to worship. And so let's worship Jesus. Let's come to him with our hearts. Let's come to him with our questions. Let's come to him with our lives. May we be a church who wants to see Jesus. The second heading that I want you to see this morning is number two, what it looks like for the Son of Man to be glorified. Your next blank says, the hour has Come. Look at verse 23, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. As we mentioned last week, over and over again in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. But now he's saying, my time has come. The hour has now arrived for the Son of Man to be glorified. This Son of Man is a title. Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. He's also referred to as the Son of Man. They're both titles that are referenced in various places of Scripture. The Son of Man is a very well-known prophecy of Daniel chapter 7. That's not the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel 9, but in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, the Son of Man refers to the coming Messiah. Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. It's a reference to the Messiah. And he came to the Ancient of Days. So the Son of Man, Jesus, came and presented himself before God the Father, referred to here as the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him, so the Father gives to the Son, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." It's a son of man prophecy, Daniel 7. All the Pharisees would have known about it. All the Jews would have known about it. So when Jesus referred to himself as the son of man in this verse, there would have been an instant recognition of this prophecy. And this was the moment the disciples were waiting for. Finally, the kingdom is here. A kingdom we can call our own. Finally, dominion and glory and kingdom privileges. But Jesus goes on to explain what his glory looks like. You look at that next blank. The crucifixion and the resurrection is key because as he t- he's talking about here in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man, Messianic reference, to be glorified. Well, what does that mean, to be glorified? I'm saying the crucifixion and the resurrection are key. Jesus would be glorified, and through his death and his resurrection, Jesus he would become obedient to the point of death on a cross, and Jesus would drink from the bitter cup of death, and Jesus would bear the wrath of God on the cross for the sins of those who would repent and believe. Jesus was the cornerstone that the builders rejected, and Jesus was the heir of the vineyard who would be killed. It was Jesus who foretold his death over and over, and his disciples didn't quite grasp it. 
Remember, it was on the the road to Emmaus a couple of uh, days or weeks after the resurrection that he encountered those two individuals who were discussing the crucifixion and the resurrection. And Jesus uh, spoke to them and he said, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe what the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So in other words, when Jesus says the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, it's crucifixion plus resurrection. Together, it's a package. You can't have the glory without the suffering. You don't get the crown without the cross. And so he explained to them from Moses and the prophets all the things in Scripture concerning himself. The the glory of Christ did not come with ease. The obedience of Christ was not effortless. Jesus sweat drops of blood. Jesus shed tears with loud cries. Jesus received an unjust punishment. Jesus allowed himself to be flogged up to one inch of his life. Jesus let the soldiers pluck out his beard and mock him and spit upon him. He allowed them to make fun of him over and over again. Jesus carried his cross. He was nailed to a piece of wood Jesus wore a crown of thorns. Jesus bore the wrath of God. This is all a part of Jesus's glory. Jesus was also raised from the dead. Jesus was resurrected by the power of our triune God. The grave could not hold him. The stone was rolled away. The seal was broken. The tomb was empty. God has highly exalted Jesus and given him the name that is above every name. Jesus is the risen Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lord of the living and the dead. Jesus is the Almighty One. He is our great high priest who forever intercedeth. He is the head of the church. He is the Lion of Judah. He is the victorious one. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. The glory of Christ is seen in his death and in his resurrection as Jesus taught us and he showed us his glory comes in life, death, and in resurrection. And then the master teacher, Jesus, makes this abundantly clear by giving us a divine illustration. Just in case we're like, whoa, 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 what are you talking about, Jesus? He's like, let me give you an illustration. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's your next blank, the divine illustration. When he says, truly, truly, it's a way of getting your attention. He's like, hey, listen up. I'm about to tell you something of great value and great importance. Don't miss it. And Jesus is known for giving parables and examples specifically from an agricultural background because they lived at a time when everyone would have been able to see and relate and understand what he's saying. That's why Jesus taught us on the Sermon on the Mount about how healthy trees bear good fruit and diseased trees bear bad fruit or this parable of the sower where some seed was scattered on the ground and some uh, bore, uh, d- didn't bear any fruit and then some bore a little bit of fruit and he explains what that means. And then there's the parable of the mustard seed when he says if you take the smallest of the seeds and plant it in the ground, when the seed grows, it becomes larger than all the other garden plants So Jesus was regularly just teaching. I mean, he was a good farmer. I mean, he's a carpenter, right? But he knows farming and he understands it. So did the whole culture. And so in this verse, verse 24, Jesus is explaining the necessity of his own life and death. A grain, a seed, a kernel must first go into the earth and die in order to reproduce. For all of you botany fans out there, In plant life, this process is called germination. Germination is the growth of a tiny plant that is contained inside of a seed. Seed germination depends both on internal and external conditions. The external conditions include warmth, water, and oxygen in order for this process to take place, but it is the internal conditions that truly promote the success of the growth As the seed is watered, the outer, harder coating begins to soften and the growth begins to happen from within the plant's own DNA. As the seedling grows, it draws from the food reserves stored within the seed. As soon as the little plant 
breaks through the soil and reaches for the sun, the process of photosynthesis can now begin and you now have a viable plant. One wheat seed can produce about 400 grains of wheat. One kernel of corn can produce on one stalk about four ears, which equals about 3,000 kernels of corn. J.C. Ryle said about this illustration, quote, it revealed under a striking figure the mighty foundational truth that Christ's death was to be the source of spiritual life to the world. From his cross and sufferings was to spring up a mighty harvest of benefit to all mankind. His death, like a grain of seed, was to be the root of blessings and mercies to countless millions of immortal souls. Close quote. What is Jesus teaching us in this agricultural lesson? He's saying that it is time for him to die. It is time for him to go into the ground. All the conditions have been met, and the crucifixion will be his death. But in his resurrection, he will produce life. He will not remain alone. He will die, come back to life, and through his presence in our hearts, he will bear much fruit. It is not the blood of the martyrs that was the seed of the church. It was the blood of Jesus, which is the true seed of the church. His life was sacrificed so you and I can live. And so now that we see this in Jesus, we must ask if we see this in ourselves. The next heading says, losing your life leads to keeping it forever. Because Jesus is not only saying, this is what I'm doing, but he's saying, this is what you should be doing. Because here's what he says in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Verse 25, your next blank, what does it mean to love? When he says here, whoever loves his life loses it. What does it mean to love? Well, the word for love in this verse is not the word agape, but it is the word phileo. This kind of love, phileo love, means to have a special interest in. It means to like. It has the connotations of liking something a lot. And what is he warning us about what we're loving? Whoever loves his life. The word for life here is not the spiritual, eternal life, zoe, but rather it is the word suke. This kind of life is describing our life on earth, not in the sense that you are physically alive, or that would be the word bios, but this life, suke, is more than just physical life. It's saying, like, I like my life. Like, I like my life right now. I like how things are going. I'm enjoying my income and my car and my phone and my things and my house and my vacations and my friends and my chosen forms of entertainment. And so I really don't want to give any of that up. I just want to keep living like I'm living because I like my life. I like doing what I like to do and what makes me happy. So just let me do my thing. But Jesus says, if you love your life like that, then you will lose it. Maybe not today, but one day you will lose it and you will be forfeiting eternal life. Matthew 16, 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? If you love your life too much, then your life has become your God. And if your life is your God, then God is not your God. You may think you are gaining now, but you will die and you will forfeit or lose your soul. And so Jesus is saying, don't love your life like that. Instead, you need to hate your life. Now, what does this mean? Your next blank, what does it mean to hate? I thought the Bible taught us not to hate. In fact, Jesus says if you hate your brother, it's like you're committing murder. So what does it mean to hate your life? In this context, the word hate means to love less. You can study it in lexicons. This is a permissible and even a, a very 
clear definition in this context to love your life less. Do you know how in the Bible it says, Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated? That doesn't mean that God hates Esau in a sinful way. It simply means that he loved Esau less. He loved Jacob more by saving Jacob, by electing love. He saved him to salvation. God only loved Esau with a common grace kind of love. And so he passed over Esau in the doctrine of reprobation. Now Jesus is teaching us in the New Testament, in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is not saying we need to actively and sinfully hate father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, Jesus is saying that you must love them less. If you're coming to Jesus, he must be your number one. If you're coming to Jesus, you must prefer him and his word more than your family. I would propose to you this is the love that Jim Elliott had as he counted the cost and he said, you know what, I love Jesus more and the furtherance of the gospel more. I'm willing to take the risk. You must please Christ over and above pleasing your own family. If you have to make a choice, you have to choose Jesus. Your family may be mad at you. and They may not understand you. And in some cultures, they may disown you. But you must love Jesus more. And if you don't love Jesus more than your family and then your life, then you cannot be his disciple. And by the way, the reward is well worth it because if you hate your life in this world, then you will keep it for eternal life. Your next blank, what does it mean to keep it for all eternity? Many people think that the most important things in life are food and clothing and pleasure. They live for these things. They give their lives and their time and their energy for these things. But by loving their physical life so much, they are neglecting their soul. They forget to nourish the soul. They abandon the spiritual reality. And the reality is this. The soul is more important than the body. More important than working out, than eating right, than taking the right vitamins, than wearing the right facial products, than consuming the right protein powder, than doing all the colon cleanses that are out there, than rubbing essential oils all over your body. More important than all of that is your soul, the welfare of your soul. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 31 through 33, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Are you willing this morning to give up everything this life has to offer for eternal life? Are you willing today to give up your family and your possessions and, yes, even your life for Jesus? Are you willing to die every day to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life? Are you willing to confess this morning that you've been too focused on the here and now and you're not thinking about heaven and you're not thinking about sacrifice and you're not thinking about the cost it may require? Well, no wonder we're not content because we're looking, many of us, for something or someone in this life to satisfy us. And my friend, that is idolatry. Only Jesus can satisfy and only Jesus can give you lasting joy and only Jesus can give you eternal life. Warren Wiersbe aptly writes here, quote, there can be no glory without suffering, no fruitful life without death, no victory without surrender. Of itself, a seed is weak and useless, but when it is planted, it dies and becomes fruitful. Are you dying? Or are you living the life of this world? Are you willing to hate your life, but to love Christ in this way that you'll sacrifice anything and everything, not just in the big decisions, but on a daily basis? 
One last heading, the one who serves follows in the footsteps of Jesus. Your next blank says serving is following. Serving is following. Verse 26, we read here that if anyone serves me, Jesus said, he must follow me and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. Serving is following. The word for serving here is the word diakoneo. It's the, where we would get the word deacon from. To be a deacon is to be a servant. This word is also used by Jesus in Mark 9, 35. If anyone would be first, he must be last and the servant of all. I had a great talk with my kids this week as we were getting in the van after a function after school. Shotgun! I get the front seat. I get the middle row. Oh, Daddy, why do I have to go to the back? It's like, well, kids, let's talk about that for just a minute. Open your Bibles up. Children, children. Jesus said, the first shall be last, right? And the last shall be first, that we're called to be a servant of all, right? No matter what that means in your life, I mean, yeah, we're supposed to serve Jesus with all that we are by serving at church and serving him, but it's just simple daily practices of putting others in front of yourself, that you and I can serve others by putting their interests in front of our own. We can serve here at church by being involved in different ministries, and you can be a servant at work by going the extra mile to help out a co-worker. You can be a servant by helping your kids with their homework. You can be a servant by helping out around the house. And when you're doing these things, you are following Christ's teaching. And when we are serving others, we are following Jesus' example. Matthew 20, 28, Jesus said, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so while you can't give your life to ransom somebody from their sin, you can certainly give your life as a servant and a follower of Jesus. 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so not only do we see that serving is really following Jesus, we also see that where he is is where you need to be. So wherever Jesus is is where I want to be. I hope that you want to be with Jesus. I hope that you're ready to stand with Jesus on the good days and on the bad days. I hope that you're willing to suffer and die with Jesus. Wherever he is, is where you need to be. And where is Jesus? He's right here in his word. And we need to be spending more time in the word. As an individual, you need to be spending quality time in the word. As a family, you need to be spending time together in the word. In small group, you need to be spending time together in the word. Because where Jesus is, is where we want to be. And obviously, Jesus is with us wherever we go. So we just need to go with that in mind. When we go to church, Jesus is with us. When we go to school, Jesus is with us. When we go to work, Jesus is with us. When we go to the movies, Jesus is with us. When we go hang out with our friends, Jesus is with us. When you go to bed at night, Jesus is with us. And because we know that we want to be mindful of the fact we just want to be in his presence, we want to have that eternal mindset, even as Jesus gives us in John 14, 3, that where I am, you may be also. So not only are you going to be with him forever, you're with him forever starting on day one of your salvation. And that ought to change the way you live of having a spiritual mindset and how you spend your time and your resources. The last blank here says, true servants will receive true honor. The end of verse 26, if anyone serves me, the father will honor him. And if you are faithful in serving the Lord, he will be faithful in honoring you. By God's grace, I've received a lot of honors in my life, as have you. You may have made the honor roll in your elementary school, and your parents proudly have that bumper sticker on the back of their car, my kid made honor roll. Awesome, that's cool, right? You may have made honor roll, you may have gotten a scholarship for college, you may have received an award for being an athletic standout, maybe you were the first chair in the band, Maybe you got honored at work for some achievement, but there is no honor like the Lord saying on that final day, well done, good and faithful servant. All human honors and achievements pale in comparison with the eternal honor that God will bestow on those who love and serve Jesus. Now, I started off this morning telling you that familiar story about Jim Elliott, how he gave his life to reach the Aka Indians. Do you know how that story ends? Well, the good news is, is that he did not die in vain. 
A few years after his death, his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, and other missionaries finally were able to befriend that same tribe. Because of God's love and forgiveness, many of these Aka Indians came to Christ. Elizabeth Elliot actually moved in with the tribe and met the man who killed her husband. His name is Minkai. He came to saving faith. And I met Minkai at a shepherd's conference in 2003 when he came to share his testimony. And I shook Minkai's hand. And I thought in that moment, this is the hand that killed Jim Elliott. And now we're bound together in Christian love and brotherhood. That's what the gospel does. The gospel helps you to gain what really matters. Let me tell you who gained in Jim Elliott's death. Jim Elliott gained, for to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And from that day on, he's with Jesus. And that's gaining a whole lot more than this world can ever offer. Minkai gained, for it was from that effort and the follow-up efforts that Minkai actually came to Christ. Every person who's ever read this story has gained as we see how true it is that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I hope that as you reflect on John 12, particularly these verses that we looked at this morning, that you will truly see how powerful it is to have the perspective that to die is gain. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at John 12 this morning. We're, we're stirred, Lord, by the simple teaching of our Lord Jesus, leading the way with his own life, his own death, challenging us to do the same, that we need to learn to hate our life and not to love it. We need to be willing to forsake all for the sake of Christ. We live in a comfortable society. While it's heating up, Lord, some of us are pretty comfortable, and I pray that we would just be mindful of the fact that we're not promised tomorrow or the protections of a government that would somehow keep us from suffering in these ways. And so I pray, God, that we'd be willing to give all, we'd be willing to give every day, and that as we're dying to self, that we realize that dying is gaining with this spiritual truth that we're taught today, that when we see the sacrifice and death of Jesus and the resurrection, that we too can die to sin and live to Christ and that is great gain, and it's godliness with contentment that is great gain, and that we wouldn't hold to anything else any longer except Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.